Dream Pictures Podcast, Episode 8. Welcome to Dream Pictures Podcast, Episode 8. I'm your host, Bill Webb. Today, I am kicking off the official release of my new novel, One Lone Friend. It's book one in a series I call The Lope Ha Adventures, Love, Peace, and Harmony. Today, we're going to hear a few excerpts from the audiobook, a few songs related to the book, and we're going to celebrate the fact that the book is now available as paperback, as an ebook, and as an audiobook. We'll give you more information about where to find the book at the end of the podcast. Now it's story time. Time to sit back, relax, and enjoy a few excerpts from the audiobook. We take you now to the high desert of New Mexico. John Whitlock is coming out of a several-day drunken blackout. He has just experienced delirium tremens with hallucinations that terrified him. All he remembers is that last evening with his wife and daughter when he started drinking, and the next morning when he woke up to find his wife and daughter gone with only a note that said, What you did last night was unforgivable. We are gone forever. When he came to, the hallucinations were gone, and his mind was a little clearer, but he felt weak and had the shakes. He had no idea how long he'd been out. He reasoned he'd been having alcohol-related delirium tremens, or DTs, as his social work colleagues called them. The sky was bright, but the sun was still hidden behind silver-gray clouds. John had no sense of direction, no sense of time, and no idea where civilization might be. It was not very hot, which might indicate morning, meaning he would probably have to endure the afternoon heat. His tongue felt woolly, and he may not have had water for a long time. The alcohol had most likely caused dangerous dehydration. He looked again at the distant mountain range and collected his thoughts. This may be high desert, he thought. That would explain the cooler temperatures. The mountain did not look far away, but as John stumbled forward, they did not seem to appear any closer. He stopped and looked behind him and had a vague memory of being thrown out of a train. He wondered what happened to the railroad tracks, but they were nowhere in sight now. He scanned the entire horizon and didn't even see one telephone pole or power line. The only bearing he could get was from the mountains. He licked his dry lips with a chalky tongue. There could be water up there, he hoped. He fixated on the mountains. His mind needed to cling to something that made sense. He felt his determination building. His desire to survive was strong and was carrying him through his weakness. He stopped and peered at the closest mountaintop through drips of perspiration. Is that a tower? Yes, a tower! He knew of watchtowers and forests, and if this was one of those, the mountains must be forested, and that could mean water, a ranger, and rescue. Just as he was thinking of this, he noticed a cloud of dust between him and the mountains. It looked stationary, except that it was growing larger. Within a few moments, he could hear the sound of a car engine roaring loudly with no muffler. He started to wave his arms frantically, but the vehicle was headed straight to him, so he propped himself against a large rock and waited. 
After a few minutes, a rust bucket of a dune buggy came to a sliding halt in front of him, and out of a cloud of dust, a skinny, gray, thick bearded man wearing a tattered straw cowboy hat winked at him and said, You got a mall round here, sonny? A what? John was still dazed and wasn't sure he'd heard the high-pitched tinny voice correctly. You got a mall round here? A mall, man, a mall. I got a hankering for one of them big, soft pretzels. Pretzels? You know, they taste best with plain yellow mustard on them. That's how I like them. Plain yellow mustard, yep. You want one? Hop in. Must be a mall round here someplace. John robotically obeyed and walked around to the other side of the buggy and stared inside. The passenger seat and floor were covered in wrappers from all kinds of candy bars, donuts, and almost any sweet treat you could imagine, along with dozens of smashed, empty orange soda cans. Well, come on, come on, come on, get in. I ain't got all day. Shove that shit on the floor and set. Careful, don't want to litter the desert now. He waved his arm carelessly, then reached into a cooler in the back seat and pulled out a can of orange soda. John dragged himself up on the seat while pushing trash to the floor. The movement made him dizzy and he almost passed out again. The old man tapped his fingers on the wheel and hummed an almost unrecognizable version of sympathy for the devil. Out of this humming came in a very sly voice. Pleased to meet you. Won't you guess my name? What's puzzling you is the nature of my game. The old man paused and handed John the soda. The can felt cold and moist, and John frantically opened it and guzzled. Hey, slow down a bit, partner, the old man said with concern in his voice. He suddenly changed his demeanor and sent a starry gaze toward the sky and sighed. Here I am dragging you out of another scrape. Then, with a chuckle, <laughs> Nothing to worry about, though. You got a long ways to go before you finish this life. Huh? is all John could manage. This did not make any sense at all. He wondered if he was having DTs again. No, the wondering convinced him he wasn't. Look here, Johnny, this ain't no swamp, but you're stuck in a pile of muck anyway. You ain't got no idea where you been, where you are, or where you're headed to, do you? A thoughtful pause was followed by a cheerful, Hey, you want to know where you been? Uh, sh sure, John stuttered, and his dizzy racing mind began to focus. He thought of his first wife, Jane, and how he had deserted her in a drunken blackout. Sure, he had contacted her six months later and told her where he was. He tried to make amends, but he was too scared and self-absorbed to do much, so they agreed on a divorce and he started a new life sober in Austin, Texas, over a thousand miles away. That new life had hope and promise. It led to a college degree, a new career, another marriage, and a beautiful daughter. Unfortunately, try as he might, he could not resist taking that first drink again, even after seven years of sobriety. The drinking quickly turned into an obsession. After only six months of it, here he was, coming out of a drunken blackout in the middle of nowhere, having probably drank away his job, his family, and his sanity. Looks plenty sad, don't it, Johnny? said the old man. Hey, how do you know my name and what's going on here? Oh, nothing much, Johnny. Just looking for a pretzel. 
You know, I like the way they're all twisted into such a funny shape from just one long piece. You can start on one end and follow all the twists and turns until you get to the other. Of course, it's always hard to resist wrapping your teeth round the middle. It's a big, soft, squishy knot, and sometimes you just have to close your eyes and take a big bite. Careful, though, or you'll get a squish of mustard in your eye. He started laughing, and his laughter built up like the crescendo of a Stravinsky symphony until his eyes were tearing. <laughs> Look, I appreciate the ride. You probably saved my life, but what in God's name is going on here? Funny thing, Johnny. I often wonder if God's got a name. Hey, watch out! John shouted. They went flying over a six-foot-deep embankment into an arroyo and came to an abrupt halt in a cloud of dust. Woo-wee! Love this desert. Looks all the same at first peak till you get to moving. Never know what to expect when you're moving. He turned the buggy toward the far side of the arroyo and headed straight to it at full speed. Ah! What are you doing? What are you doing? Stop it! Stop it! Stop! The man slammed on the brakes, skidded sideways, and skillfully maneuvered to a halt right alongside the arroyo wall. As the cloud of dust swirled away in the wind, he looked John straight in the eyes and said, Got you sober, didn't it? John realized he was no longer dizzy. His head had cleared, and he actually felt completely normal. He licked his lips and felt a moist tongue slide smoothly along them. He wasn't thirsty and actually felt quite content to be alive and in one piece. So, where's this mall? I could use a clean shirt, John chided. Hey, Johnny, you do have a sense of humor. The man shifted his dialect from old crazy hybrid cowboy hippie to an articulate Midwestern lawyer voice. The time has come to come to grips. Do you know where you've been? John's face changed. You were putting me on. I knew it. You're not crazy at all. Look behind you, Johnny. John turned around to see a half-crazed javelina charging their vehicle. He instinctively jumped out and tried to scramble up the loose rock and sand of the embankment, glancing back at the fast-approaching animal. As he struggled unsuccessfully, the man sat calmly behind the wheel, took out a stick, held it like a rifle, and went... Pow, 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 at the enraged animal. It stopped dead in its tracks, turned around, and walked back from where it came. John slumped down in a dusty heap on the arroyo floor. What the hell? Hell ain't got nothing to do with it. She's just trying to protect her brood. I's just explaining to her we ain't gonna go nowhere near her kids. We's just looking for a pretzel. Now look here, Dr. Doolittle, John panted. I don't know what stopped that animal from attacking, but using a stick like a gun sure didn't do it. You sure about that, Johnny? You and Terry used a lot of sticks for guns when you as kids playing army in the dirt. John hadn't thought about that in years, and it sent his mind into a myriad of childhood scenes with Terry and him finding a new house construction site with piles of dirt or an open field with a creek. They almost never used man-made toys. They were perfectly content to find the ideal piece of wood or stick that held like a WW-2 machine gun. And they always started out with a platoon of men until the enemy whittled it down to just the two of them. John loved that feeling of being the last two brave warriors successfully beating down an entire company of Nazis. It was simpler than just the two of them, 
fewer variables, no one to worry about, because they were invulnerable and super courageous. Hey, how do you know about Terry? Oh, I know a lot of things about a lot of people. They only come up when they're needed. And the old man changed to his lawyer voice. And right now, you needed that memory, a time when you had a friendship that went deep, when you cared for and were cared about without asking any questions. Unqualified friendship, or as the psychologists call it, unconditional love. For reasons as yet unknown to John, the conversation with this strange man no longer seemed odd. John felt quite relaxed and comfortable. He forgot momentarily that he was in the open desert, far away from the home he destroyed and the reality that felt like a nightmare. The old man put the dune buggy in gear and the two of them moved across the desert in contemplative silence. It was comfortably familiar being a dynamic duo again, and John's mind was blissfully blank as he gazed across the desert toward the approaching mountains. Hey, Johnny, before we get to the mall, I got someone I want you to meet. What do you say? Look, there's not going to be any mall out here, and if you think there's people to meet, you are crazy. There's nothing but this rocky desert for miles. Just as he finished speaking, the dune buggy pulled to a stop at the base of a 500-foot cliff a cliff that had not been there a moment before. John peered up and saw a man near the top stranded on a ledge. He was shouting down at them and waving his hand. A trip through my mind is a very scary time. I never know for sure what I'm gonna find. A trip through my mind is a reason to decline To a trip to the bottom of the sea To the sea, to the sea A trip to the bottom of the sea Will I find peace of mind Down at the bottom of the sea It's very clear to see I'm confused about me Mind's manipulations don't set me free I've overanalyzed it 27 times 3 Now I'm sinking to the bottom of the sea To the sea, to the sea I'm sinking to the bottom of the sea Will I find peace of mind Down at the bottom of the sea Wait, I think I got it, my gut said to me A voice I never listened to Stop analyzing, let it be, let it fall to the bottom of the sea. To the sea, to the sea, let it fall to the bottom of the sea. To the sea, to the sea, down to the bottom of the sea. My gut said to me, a voice I never listened to previously. 
stop analyzing. Let it be. Let it fall to the bottom of the sea. To the sea, to the sea. Let it fall to the bottom of the sea. To the sea, to the sea. Down to the bottom of the sea. To the sea, to the sea. Let it fall to the bottom of the sea. Let it rest. To the sea from Bill Webb Rocks. Now let's go to a point later in the book, One Lone Friend. At this juncture, John and Terry, who had reunited and became very good friends once again, but in a new sense, were sharing their love, peace, and harmony wherever they would go, and they stepped into a high-tower office building of a multi-billionaire who owned uranium mines and oil companies. They found this pragmatic businessman was ready and willing to open his heart and change, and you will now hear the experience they had when that office opened up into a Native American powwow that totally changed this businessman's life forever. Second Interlude, The Uranium King So now you're telling me how to run my company? William Maestro paced back and forth in front of the glass wall that separated him from the sprawling metropolis below. No, no, Bill, it's these reports from the EPA. They're conclusive and about to go public. We've got to do something. Maestro took a deep, calming breath and perused the man shouting at him from across the desk. Dan Kroger, his loyal friend, prospecting partner, and now right-hand man at International Petroleum Corporation. He sat down hard in his cushy leather chair. I know you're not the enemy, Dan, but we've been keeping this under wraps for twenty years. Exposure now could put a halt to production. What with demands for uranium decreasing the way it is, this could put our Canadian and Australian competitors back on top, to say nothing of Africa. Well, there are always solutions. We can call an emergency board meeting. Forget it, Dan. Most of the board has remained voluntarily blind to the hazards in the mines. We've got to figure out a way through this before we present anything. Maestro remembered the first time EPA reports could not be ignored. That was in Colorado when high levels of radon gas were detected in a handful of private homes. They had successfully orchestrated a full cleanup of all affected communities and had satisfied the government and the public that all hazards were removed and there was no longer anyone at risk. But that was not on Navajo land and the risk to the Navajos had never been addressed. The token cleanup and positive press releases calmed everyone down for a few years, but now... He and Dan were the only ones who knew the whole story on the Navajo Mines cover-up. To date, the Navajo Nation and the U.S. government remained officially ignorant of the detrimental effects of exposure in the mines and, with so many of the original mines already closed and the tailings and runoff that had begun to contaminate their lands, Maestro didn't even know to what extent the Indians were affected. 
but it seems the EPA now had an inkling. In the midst of this cacophony of thoughts, a tiny voice inside his head whispered, What about the people? Dan shook the papers in his hand. I think the biggest problem is their reference to the original treaty. All lands will be restored to their original condition. We both know the mines were closed but never sealed up and with only minimum cleanup and no land restoration. And now they have all these reports of contamination in the waters, the livestock, the very mortar they use in the walls and floors of their homes. Mortar made from the sandy runoff from the mines themselves. Maestro tried to take another deep breath, but his breathing had become shallow and his heart was racing. What about the people? The voice whispered again. This had always been about success. His thoughts turned to his prospecting days with Dan in the Chuskas over twenty years ago, how he had beamed with arrogant confidence that they would surely succeed on their great adventure. And succeed they did, greater than their expectations. Then there were their subsequent discoveries of petroleum deposits in Canada, Australia, and South America. They were in great demand by the big companies because of their skill at finding rich deposits of ore and petroleum. Eventually, he was able to fulfill his childhood dream of sitting in the big chair of his own company. And it had all worked, except that he had no idea the discovery of radium, plutonium, and the A-bomb would also create much more than wealth and success. He felt like he was trapped on that cliff again, but this time, no one to bail him out. What about the people? Could he admit to himself that their ventures were destroying families and endangering an entire people? In his heart, he had never intended to ignore the rights and safety of anyone. He had gotten caught in the whirlwind of success. Now guilt had boiled to the surface. He had obligations to his board, investors, partners, an entire network of companies that depended on those uranium mine profits. But what about the people? Look, Bill, we've got to weigh the pros and cons of the situation. What we can do to minimize the damage. How many resources and funds we can direct to satisfying the EPA demands. Cleanup of some sort is inevitable, but we'll have to minimize the costs and maximize the results. That's enough, enough, enough of this! Maestro stood up. I know the deal. It's the same old, same old. Here we go again. Another roller coaster ride into the depths so we can eventually come out on top. Pros and cons, pros and cons. How can we save our asses this time? He turned to the wall of window and looked hopelessly out at the city. The skyscrapers were like giant wailing walls filled with mourners. More fires to put out. Always fires. So many fires. What about the people? Kroger said nothing. Maestro waved his arm behind his back and said, Go, Dan, just go. I need time to think. He heard the door close and continued staring out the window. People. The world is made of people. People with homes and families. Had he forgotten that in his quest for success? No, 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 no. Wasn't he a decent sort of fellow? Had he not treated people fairly? Oh, but how many times did he turn a blind eye? Yes, there were deals, white lies, threats, stepping on toes. But now he was beginning to realize just what effect his dealings were having on the fate of the Navajo people. The intercom buzzed him out of his morass. Mr. Maestro, there are two men in the outside lobby to see you. Oh, shit, were they here already? 
They say they are from a government agency, the Battle Brigade. The Battle Brigade, he thought. What kind of... Ah, hell, send them in. Maestro sat at his desk and pretended to organize some papers as the two men walked in. Both were neatly dressed in modest blue serge suits with white shirts and striped neckties. The one on the left was tall and gaunt, yet his cheeks were rosy and his eyes gleamed. The shorter, stocky one was smiling from ear to ear, which Maestro didn't like so much. "'Why, William, William Maestro, it's me, John, the guy who saved you from that cliff, remember? Me and the old man in the dune buggy?' Maestro looked closely at John's face, gasped and stiffened like he had just been hit with a taser. "'Aw, oh, come on, Billy boy, he saved you once. Don't think he won't do it again,' said Terry." You, you, you look so young, stammered Maestro. You know, Terry and I here were saying that same thing just the other day. Must be my healthy living, John pointed at Terry. This is Terry, Terry Silverman. Maestro exhaled loudly. What is? What is? What is? Terry interjected. He's already asking the right question, eh, Johnny? He sure is, John quickly interrupted in Terry's own vernacular. A good question is its own answer. What certainly is and what is is what is, because what isn't can't exist with what is around, and what is certainly is all around us now, isn't it? posed Terry. Maestro buried his head in his hands. Oh, I must be dreaming, I must be dreaming. When did I fall asleep? He looked up again, and the two men were still there, looking at him inquiringly, as if they were waiting for him to do something. "'So, Mr. Maestro,' John said lyrically, "'exactly why have you called this meeting?' "'Meeting? I called? What are you talking about?' "'Yes, indeedy, this meeting of your minds. Good mind, bad mind, out of your mind. Seems something must be on your mind. Something disturbing, perhaps? Something gnawing on your conscience, maybe?' You got a mindful. Come on, Bill. Spill, John seriously quipped. These two men had discombobulated Maestro so completely he was unable to shore himself up into business mode. He slapped his hands against his cheeks and pushed hard, trying to compress his thoughts into something intelligible. His heart raced. Face flushed, he felt drops of perspiration on his forehead. Pressing his lips tightly together, blowing his cheeks up like balloons, he blurted out, What about the people? and slumped back in his chair. The people, Terry began to narrate, or Dine, as they call themselves, refers to the Navajo Nation, an indigenous American people now living on a reservation that spans Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, mainly south of the Four Corners. You know, people includes you too, Bill. Don't leave yourself out, said John empathetically. Terry and John sat in their chairs across the desk from Maestro as he stared at them, eyes filling with tears. The dam burst and the pain and guilt he had suppressed for two decades spewed forth. With each heavy sob of emotional pain came a sense of relief, a lightening of the burden he had been shouldering for so long. He became oblivious of the two men, the room, his logical thoughts. Everything else was supplanted by this emotional pain relief he was experiencing. He could feel his heart changing, yet not changing, but being realized in its true form. A feeling of love welled up from inside, 
of peace, harmony, something no words could fully describe. Nothing had changed except in his own head. Not even my head, he thought. It was like it came from somewhere deeper inside him than anyone could physically go. Deeper than mind, deeper than body, yet inside his own self, not from anywhere else. And something had changed. He felt light, lighter than air, as if he had always been able to float, but a great weight had been pressing down, holding him from taking off into the air. Now the heaviness was gone, the pressure gone, and he was floating, floating, and full of such a joy that they all began to laugh. (laughs) John stood up and grabbed Terry's hand. Terry reached out to a very different William Maestro who, without thinking, came around the desk and grabbed his hand. They followed John in a circle and began dancing. Around and around they danced, faster and faster, laughing and dancing. William was so excited and happy he hardly took notice when a large campfire appeared in the center of their circle, or when the drums began beating, or when the shrill chant of a thousand singers pierced the air, or when he saw the sparks of a campfire rising into the star-studded black canopy above. They were joined by many men and women from buckskin dancers to African dancers. Each dancer was clothed differently in an indescribably colorful costume. These new dancers waved their hands like they were throwing things into the fire, so William pretended he was throwing things into the fire. With each toss, he felt even lighter. He pictured pieces of paper with words in his own handwriting being burned. Words like shame, guilt, exploitation, greed, power, lust, fear, hate, monster, evil, destruction, and death. Then he pictured other words like good, mind, body, health, happiness, healing, fix, desire, want, search, and improve burning in the fire. The fire was taking away every part of his self and his feelings were a mixture of burning grief and ecstatic joy. Out of the ashes, he was beginning to sense a new person growing from the depths of the glowing flames and ready to burst out. He could feel love, peace, and harmony growing out from the center of his heart. The chanting rose to a height that consumed all his senses. It was a language he had never heard before, but the words seemed to translate clearly in his brain. They continued on for what seemed like hours to William, who was so filled with joy he wanted it never to end. With that thought, 
he realized it would never end because it never began. It always is. He simply had never seen it until now. What is, he thought as he danced. What is, what is, what is, what is? What is, is all there is, and all there is, is beautiful. This is how William joined the ranks of those who realize peace, harmony, and love as the essence of all things. He could now see, feel, live, and breathe infinite joy. From that day forth, he no longer based his decision-making on weighing the pros and cons, debits and credits, good and bad. He no longer obsessed about himself and his own fate. He no longer saw people as instruments to his own ends. He no longer saw the world filled with problems that had to be fixed. Instead, he continued through the rest of his life being a joy and a blessing to everyone around him, and everything he did was of benefit to all parties, not just to himself and his interests. He took joy in watching those who would wake up and see. He was delighted to give forth everything he had in every given moment because he knew he was drawing from an infinite source of supply and love, an infinite source that lived within his own being. As the sun peaked between the tops of the Chuska Mountains to the east, sending beams of light across the high desert, John, Terry, and William unclasped their hands and William sat back in his cushy chair behind his desk, smiling to a quiet, empty room. And this is how John and Terry began to continue the battle they had begun as little boys, now armed with the three most powerful weapons in the world, love, peace, and harmony. I hope you've enjoyed these excerpts from the book One Lone Friend. There's so many more adventures that John and Terry have. First they find themselves, then they find each other. Then they find they can share love, peace, and harmony with the world and see lives changed before their very eyes, just like William Maestro's life was changed. Find the book as an e-book through your Kindle or at Amazon.com. Find the book as an audiobook at audible.com or order the paperback at amazon.com. Just look up One Lone Friend by Bill Webb. This is my first novel in a series I call The Lopeja Adventures, Love, Peace, and Harmony. Book two is being written now. It's called Rushing Waters. The audiobook, of course, has the music that's quoted in the book, performed for you, and background music and it's really the most exciting way to hear this book. But I do take pleasure in reading novels too, so you can enjoy the paperback on Kindle or order it today. Find more information on my secured website, billwebmusic.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-B-B music.com. And there you'll find things about the book, the latest albums, the album One Lone Friend, based on the book, and you'll also find videos and all the podcasts from Dream Pictures and the previous series of podcasts called Native American Flute Music. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast at stitcher.com, itunes.com, 
or soundcloud.com or at TuneIn Radio. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being alive. Thank you all for breathing the breath of life. Thank yourself in the morning for waking up, opening your eyes. Open your eyes and give out all the love you can and find that much more than you ever thought is possible is going to come back to you and surround you and fill your family, friends, and untold numbers of peoples with love, peace, and harmony. Until next time.